maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. And before we go to today's episode, I have an important announcement to make. As you know, Intelligence Squared is about letting you engage with the world's most brilliant minds to challenge your thinking on the biggest conversations of our time. Whether it's through our podcasts, debates or live streams, we believe that by presenting in a civil and respectful way both sides of the argument, we can expand people's perspectives. This is the only way to combat all that polarisation we're increasingly seeing in our world. To quote J.S. Mill, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. If you believe in this mission, we think you should support us through Intelligence Squared Premium. Your support will directly help us to make even more amazing podcasts, debates and live streams, stage more great live events, take Intelligence Squared to fresh audiences to hear their perspectives so that we continue the work of expanding horizons and escaping echo chambers and your support will get you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. By signing up, you'll get ad-free listening because I know some of you would prefer not to listen to those. One early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, like our sit-down with Daniel Kahneman. I think we should be talking about how to make democracy work better than it does. The reason that I'm raising that question is that I can't think of a good answer. But I wish, perhaps, if Intelligence Squared arranged a debate, maybe there would be one. I would actually refuse the booking because I would say I'm a pessimist and I have no idea how to solve the problem. But perhaps there is an idea. And there are optimists around, so they should be heard. And if you sign up through Supercast, you'll also get a 25% discount on Intelligence Squared Plus, our exciting new streaming service where you can watch along or even join the conversation to ask your questions, a 15% discount and priority access to live events so that you won't miss out on tickets for those, and our new premium monthly newsletter, which includes event write-ups, commentary from other subscribers, and a curated list of the most impactful articles our team has been excited by in the past month. This is now available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a 20% lifetime discount off the regular £4.99 a month or £49.99 a year if you sign up before August 31st. It takes less than 30 seconds to sign up. So go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thanks again for all your support. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. This week on the Sunday debate, 
we're asking, should the West defend Taiwan, with the island state being both the focus of increasing attention from the Chinese military and an unexpected visit from US officials recently, we'll find out what the future holds. Our host for today is Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. Here's Rana with more. On the 2nd of August 2022, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, made a historic visit to Taiwan as the highest American official to visit the self-governing island in 25 years. And while the threat of an invasion from China is something that the Taiwanese have lived with for decades, Pelosi's visit has stirred up fresh international tensions concerning the United States and, by extension, the West's relationship with China and with Taiwan. Throughout August, following Pelosi's visit, China's military have escalated combat alert patrols and military drills in the waters and airspace around Taiwan. And following Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine in February of this year, Many Westerners have made the observation that Xi Jinping is watching closely to decide the future of Taiwan, although China and Taiwan have been thinking about this issue for much longer, decades in fact. This has raised discussion and debate across the liberal world about how governments should prepare for the potential invasion of Taiwan, whether the West should defend Taiwan, and what that would actually mean. For many in the West, the question of defending Taiwan is a question of protecting democracy and freedom and not bending to China's power. However, others question whether going to war with China is a futile mission, which ultimately would damage world peace. To explore this issue, I'm joined now by three guests from around the world. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis in Washington, Senior Fellow for Defense Priorities and a former Lieutenant Colonel in the US Army. Benedict Rogers in London, human rights activist, journalist, and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch. And Brian Ho in Taipei, editor of New Bloom magazine, and blogger for The Diplomat. Welcome to you all. We'd like to give the floor to our guests and let them set out their case. So I'm going to ask each of my guests in turn to set out in no more than three minutes an answer to the question, should the West defend Taiwan? And I'm going to start with Benedict Rogers. Ben. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rana. And it's a privilege to engage in this incredibly important topic with uh, such a distinguished panel let me start by uh, emphasizing that no one in their right mind would want war. And a war with uh, China over Taiwan uh, would indeed be utterly devastating for the entire world. It would create a global recession on a scale uh, never before seen in, in recent memory, at least. Our reliance on supply chains in China means that while I think we should be diversifying supply chains, a sharp decoupling uh, would be incredibly painful for everyone involved. And the idea of two nuclear superpowers in armed conflict is surely something that we should do everything to prevent. But that's the key word, prevent. We should do everything possible to deter Beijing from invading Taiwan. And we need to pursue, in my view, peace through strength, making it clear to Beijing that in the event of an invasion, the West would not stand idly by and that the consequences for China in that situation would be catastrophic. Why do we have an interest in standing with Taiwan? Well, firstly, because Taiwan is a, a vibrant, open, free society that upholds human rights and has one of the most successful democracies in Asia. An attack on Taiwan would be an attack on the free world. And if we allow an invasion to go unchallenged, it will upend the entire international rules-based order. It would be a significant advance for authoritarianism against freedom. Secondly, Taiwan's position in the first island chain means a failure to defend it would be interpreted as weakness not only in Beijing, but by our allies in the region, particularly Japan, Korea, the Philippines, leaving them far more exposed, threatened, and driven further into Beijing's orbit. And lastly, Taiwan is of crucial strategic economic importance. It is the eighth largest economy in Asia, the 18th largest in the world, and crucially, the producer of 70% or more of the world's semiconductors, the microchips that power pretty much all our electronic devices, including the, the ones we're using for this recording, our smartphones, our computers. Do we want to put that technology, uh, control of that technology, uh, into China's hands? As Ian Easton says, if Taiwan falls, 
it poses an existential threat to us all. So yes, we should defend Taiwan. How is another question, which no doubt we'll discuss uh, in this podcast. Thank you. Ben, thank you very much for a very clear opening statement there. And I'm now going to throw the floor open to Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Daniel, please. Thank you very much, Ron. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. This is indeed a, a very uh, uh, amazing panel uh, that we have for uh, Assemble here, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. As to the question at hand, should the United States defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack, uh, the answer is an unequivocal and absolute no. And for very practical reasons, we can't do it successfully. We cannot successfully prevent China from attacking Taiwan and most likely could not prevent them from successfully accomplishing their objective of uh, taking over the island. I mean, that's still an open question whether they would succeed. Uh, my military assessment tells me that the chances are very high that they would. But the, the problem is when you look at this from a very graphic uh, military uh, situation, you take away all the emotion, you take away any of the whether it should or shouldn't happen, but just the cold, hard calculations in terms of the military calculation. Uh, and the reality is that China will not launch an attack unless they have all the cards in their hands. They will not telegraph their intentions. They will almost certainly do it if they're going to go for a full-on invasion at the at a time and a place where nobody expects it. I would expect that the the tensions would lower, that the Taiwan-China issue would fall off the media front page across the world, that people would be diverted to any one of a number of other places, uh, because that's what China would want. They would want people not to pay attention. The ramifications of that are, are decisive, in my view. That would mean that China, which, as you mentioned in your opening, has been thinking about and preparing for such an eventuality for decades, and therefore they have almost certainly built up large stocks of ammunition, fuel, food, all of the things that you need for war to maintain a sustained operation. But the United States has none of those things. We're in a, just a standard peacetime situation, meaning we don't have large stocks of, of anything ready to go. We don't have a sustained industrial capacity to continue you know, to sustain an operation that you would need to in a full wartime situation. All those things would be ground zero and, and uh, no propression, meaning it would take weeks for us to even sail into that area, and then we wouldn't have enough ammunition or weapons to sustain anything more than a handful of days of high-intensity conflict. We, we simply couldn't do it, but China could. And if we made the attempt, uh, as we just saw in a, in a recent interview just a couple of days ago, or last week, I believe it was, the United States could lose up to 900 aircraft and two aircraft carriers in a so-called successful uh, defense of Taiwan. But I don't know how that works as a success in anybody's mind, really because Taiwan would be devastated and our ability to defend anywhere in the Pacific would be gutted. For those reasons, I believe that it's just not even feasible to attempt it, and therefore we need to go down diplomatic paths or anything else to deter the war, because I agree with Benedict that that would be catastrophic for the world. Daniel, thank you very much. An immensely clearly laid out position there about why the US and by extension the West, in your argument, should not seek to defend Taiwan. Let me turn now to Brian Ho, who is speaking to us, in fact, today from Taipei, right at the center of the whole issue. Brian, could I invite you to join us? Thanks for having me today. It's great to be here with everybody. So I think then, particularly thinking about this question of the West and Taiwan, I'd like to reframe these uh, the way it's been discussed. For example, what would China gain from an invasion of Taiwan? Troop estimates are of loss of life are the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. The economic impact would be catastrophic, as been discussed. With that loss of life for an army that has not fought a war in 40 years, uh, with that economic devastation at a time in which China's economy was already slowing before COVID-19 and it's continued to be affected by COVID-0 and rolling lockdowns, can the CCP actually maintain political legitimacy after invasion of Taiwan? It would be disastrous. It would be irrational for China to invade Taiwan. On the other hand, if China behaves irrationally, that's to say, for example, if Xi Jinping is seeking to expand power, to consolidate power, because he is threatened by enemies, this might occur. And so then, how should we think about preventing a scenario in which we see loss of life, both Chinese, Taiwanese, US, or otherwise, while also defending Taiwan's de facto freedoms? Because I think oftentimes in the debate of if the West should defend Taiwan or not is discussed as an all or nothing option, as though there's only the option to commit to the military defense of Taiwan versus appeasement 
allowing Taiwan simply to become part of China with the belief that this staves off China. We see from history, appeasement usually does not work. We see with China's actions and rising aggression in the region, its ambitions may not purely be with Taiwan. It might be general power projection in the Asia-Pacific. After the Pelosi visit, for example, we saw actions directed not at just Taiwan, but also Japan and South Korea. And it seems that China's views of national rejuvenation might not simply end with Taiwan, as it is claimed, because oftentimes with rising powers, with imperial powers, the desire continues to expand once they already obtain some gain from their aggression. And so I think that's how we should think about this question of what stance other countries take vis-a-vis Taiwan. Brian, thank you very much indeed. Again, a very clear and articulate set of thoughts there, which will inform our debate today. What I'd like to do, if I may, is to just come back to each of our speakers for a minute or so and just pick up on a couple of quick points to check that we have some of the the terms of trade, if you want to might put it that way, for our discussion set out. And then we're going to open up into a wider conversation about many of the issues that flow from this very, very sensitive, very, very important issue, not just for Asia, but in fact for the wider world. Could I come back actually first to you, Daniel, if I may, because you obviously are drawing on your immense record of military expertise to make a judgment. And those people who keep an eye on the papers will have actually seen that there have been, as you mentioned, reports recently that simulated um, exercises by the US military against a Chinese military projected from where we are now suggest that there is no certainty whatsoever that the Western world would necessarily win an all-out confrontation. But I think there's a couple of things that we would just want to check out on this. I mean, the first thing is that Taiwan has been pushed more and more by its defenders, in the wider sense of that word, into the idea that it should reorient itself into a society which were it to encounter a full-scale Chinese invasion, and we could talk later about how likely that actually is, if they were to encounter a full-scale invasion, then this turns into guerrilla territory, the the porcupine strategy, as it's sometimes uh, called. In other words, factories are are blown up. People take to Taiwan's very considerable mountains um, out there in Alishan and other places, essentially running an an insurgency. In your opinion, is that the way in which thinking about a strategy for a defense of Taiwan can and should realistically be oriented, as opposed to the kind of classic warfare that people perhaps think about in in terms of the context of World Wars I or II? Well, it certainly couldn't be done in a way of, you know, World War One kind of thing, just because the, the limitations of the geography. You know, I, I certainly hear a lot about this porcupine theory and and, uh, and to some extent, I've even advocated that that's what Taiwan should do, because the, the intent is to make any attempt at invasion from Beijing to be so painful uh, that they would calculate it's not in their interest to do that and to try any other means to, to cooperate or, or coexist, etc. But here's the harsh, again, reality. Unlike Ukraine, which has a very large land border with very friendly Western nations and equipment, uh, supplies and Uh, Material support can easily flow back and forth, and and we can sustain that almost indefinitely. That's not the case in Taiwan. If if China even blockades as a part of taking on an invasion uh, and and the Taiwanese take to the hills and all the things you just mentioned, the problem is you can't sustain that from outside. There's, There's no way to get stuff in because China will blockade the air and the sea, and so at some point, uh, you know, all those forces are going to run out of ability to continue to operate and they'll just be starved out of it, as was the the Ukraines in Mariupol, for example. You would have on a larger scale what happened there. You could squeeze them out. And over time, the Chinese are going to be able to overcome that. One quick follow on uh, to, to that then, Daniel, before I move to the other speakers. What you're projecting and what those more widely publicized war games have projected is essentially an extrapolation from where we are now in the year 2022. But is there not a, a valid military argument, which actually is as much as anything else, an economic and spending argument, that if you basically increase and change the amount of power that not just the United States, but also its allies, most notably Japan, which of course spends $44 billion a year on defense, almost all of which is aimed either really at China or at North Korea, the only two countries with which Japan really has any global global issues, combined with the fact that there is a satellite of US allies, either formal or otherwise, in the Western Pacific, that this is sufficient to build on now to mean that by the late 2020s, it would be much more of a formidable enterprise for China to essentially launch an assault on Taiwan. Is there any logic to that argument? Only if all of those states form a defensive alliance, like NATO, with an Article 5 type guarantee that an attack on one is an attack on all, and then you bring the full power to include the nuclear umbrella onto the equation with Taiwan. 
I don't see any evidence that anybody is going to do that. I mean, we saw just this past Sunday, the uh, interim prime minister from Australia emphatically say, we adhere to the one China process, uh, one China position, and we want to de-escalate, et cetera. They are nowhere near moving in a direction that that would be. And I, I can't see either South Korea or Japan doing anything differently. So I, I don't see any likelihood that that's going to happen because all the nations like Australia just expressly said, they're looking at their national interest, and they don't see any interest in sacrificing their country and military uh, for Taiwan. I just That's the cold, hard truth of it. I don't see it. Well, let me use that to move to come back to Ben Rogers for a couple of questions. And Ben, you set out a clear position based in a particular set of moral positions. But of course, what Daniel's given us is a pretty hard-headed, pretty bleak military assessment of what the reality of the Taiwan Straits is about. In the end, doesn't Daniel's military projection, and you do, I'm sure you've seen these reports also of war games between the US and its allies and China, which don't particularly come out very well for the, the Western side on that, mean that actually the brave moral position of saying defend Taiwan at all costs simply isn't actually feasible? Well, I think certainly it is a, it's a terrible choice, the choice of just surrendering Taiwan or the choice of engaging in what I think we all acknowledge would be a, a catastrophic war. And, and certainly I, I defer very much to Daniel's military expertise, which, uh, which I don't have at all. So I very much respect his position. I think my two concerns would be, firstly, the question of, of signaling now that we wouldn't defend Taiwan, I think might accelerate the possibility of an invasion. So Western countries taking a position that Daniel is advocating of saying we would not defend Taiwan, I think would be quite dangerous. And I would also question the point, uh, although of course recognizing Daniel's expertise, the point he made about the fact that supplies are not in place. Is that not an argument, which I know, I know Ian Easton, who's written a lot on this, has advanced, that actually we should be pre-positioning supplies uh, now and plenty of them. We should be increasing uh, military exchanges. Uh, we should be sending more high-level delegations to Taiwan so that they better understand the terrain uh, that is affected. Um, and that the policy that we've had for so many years until now of basically having virtually no political or and certainly no military dialogue with Taiwan leaves us in a much weaker position. So in other words, sh shouldn't we be preparing for it now, ideally with a view that that preparation will cause Beijing to not uh, want to go ahead with it? I'll take a very quick answer from Daniel on that before we come to Brian. Daniel, do you want to reply to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that would almost like set the stage in motion that everybody's getting ready for war. The central part of this is that to the extent to which Beijing truly believes that this is a core vital national interest of theirs, and one for which they are willing to pay virtually any price to attain. If that's the case, we're not going to deter them. And setting up all this military stuff is not going to turn them back because, look, we should not be building up a war-making potential to fight a war with China because as this demonstration uh, of this uh, war game just showed, and one that a friend of mine, Harry Kazianis, did some uh, number of years ago, which was just as bad. In fact, it ended worse with a nuclear exchange and billions dying, which is entirely possible. Because of the risk to global security and the United States, we should not do this. And I take a little bit of the different view on, on your comment that the signaling would make China more likely to attack. I think that the signaling would make it more likely that Taiwan would recognize that they're not going to have the defense, so they need to take a different diplomatic tack, not to surrender to China, not, not to become a vassal, but to continue the status quo, which has worked since 1949 and can continue to work as long as they don't say independence, they'll maintain their freedom that they have right now. That's my view. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. As long as they don't say independence, they'll maintain their freedom that they have right now. That's my view. Which has sometimes become known as the 1992 consensus, particularly on the on the Beijing uh, side. Not everyone necessarily shares that consensus. But that is a point of view that I want to take straight to, to Brian. Because, Brian, you said a lot of things there were actually really chimed with what Daniel's just said in terms of sometimes the discussion seems very binary. It's kind of either one thing or another. And actually, there are some subtleties that we need to understand. I want to just um, poke a little bit away at a statement that you made, where you said that historically, appeasement, a term which is hugely morally freighted these days, hasn't tended to work. But some would argue that actually, appeasement works pretty often. It's just that when it works, people don't call it appeasement. Let me give you a Cold War example. The country of Finland, which ever since World War II was and remains a liberal democracy, nonetheless, in a process which is often known to historians as Finlandization, made significant compromises in its domestic politics, particularly basically pushing anti-Soviet politicians in domestic politics in Finland out of power, because they knew that even though they were a free democracy, they were next to a very powerful authoritarian state, the Soviet Union, with nuclear weapons, which had the capacity to invade them by land. And we can say many things about the Cold War, but one thing is that there was never a Soviet invasion of Finland. Now, I don't know whether there is any argument that you can see that part of the path for Taiwan, perhaps taking on that um, that type of diplomacy that Daniel's been talking about, might be about trying to build on the 1992 consensus, so-called the idea of the status quo, and moving from there. Or is that simply too much like appeasement now from the point of view of domestic Taiwan politics? Yeah, so I guess a few points on that. Um, a, yes, the 1990 consensus is effectively no longer something that appeals to Taiwanese voters. Two successive KMT leaders, party chairs, have proposed dropping the 1990 consensus because this is seen as a dead albatross on the neck of the party that doesn't resonate with the Taiwanese public. The Taiwanese public historically has voted for which party they view as preserving Taiwan's existing democratic freedoms, but also preventing the possibility of a Chinese conflict. And at present, this is no longer the KMT, which historically used the 1990 consensus as a way to say that it is the party that should be in power, that can maintain stable cross-strait relations. At present, this is the DPP, which is not emphatic on the 1990 consensus, but maintains a pro-status quo position and has moved away from its historical position of independence. Uh, regarding the uh, question of appeasement in that sense, I think the, the question of how to prevent China from taking military action against Taiwan is no longer about the 1990 consensus, because I think China's red line is often shifting. Uh, what is viewed as acceptable to China in the past is not in the present. And I think just expecting agreements from 50 years ago told in the present under Xi Jinping's China is not really the case that will hold at present, because I do think there are global ambitions. When you look at Chinese nationalist rhetoric, for example, oftentimes this is very directed at Japan, being Japan as a historical enemy that China needs to avenge itself against. I do not think it actually stops only with Taiwan. Uh, but in terms of the behavior of the Taiwanese public, I think, for example, that so, it's already so been... Just, a, just, just yeah. Brian, bro, could you stop there a second? Are, are you suggesting that the policy of the People's Republic of China following on from an assault on Taiwan would be an invasion of Japan? I mean, it's, a, it's a very far scenario in the future where I wouldn't hazard any predictions, but this is in the direction in which Chinese nationalist rhetoric can often move. And so I think oftentimes then... For a leader that needs to maintain political control of China, you do have to answer to the public in some sense. And then the danger, particularly, too, is what is this product of nationalist rejuvenation consist of? You might not be acting on rational political principles or rational cost-benefit analysis in terms of policy considerations or where you decide to move. Well, I wish we had time on this podcast to explore that question of whether or not the ambition goes beyond Taiwan, which, you know, for, for good or real has been declared a Chinese core interest uh, from Beijing for, for some time. Japan and invasion thereof is not a policy that even in the, the wildest uh, uh, parts of the think tank world of Beijing, I, see, I think, has yet been. We'll see that. Let's get back, though, to your, your point. Just one quick follow up on that before we, we widen the discussion. I mean, I think 
you know, anyone listening will take the point, regardless of where they stand on the wider questions, that Taiwan's public, which is free, democratic, has a chance of plenty of debate and has evolved greatly in the past few decades, doesn't like the idea of a 1992-style consensus in which the status quo of Taiwan being an unrecognized state in the world exists in that same form. And yet there's a way an uncharitable person might describe the very articulate view you've given of Taiwan's politics is that it's a version of liberal democratic politics on the island, almost as if China didn't exist. And I take you back to my previous Finland example. The problem is that you have a, as you know, you have a very large authoritarian state with a lot of weaponry, a couple of hundred miles off the coast to the west, and it's not going away. How much, if at all, can domestic, liberal, democratic politics in Taiwan between the two main parties, the other ones too, take account of the reality that there is a huge security problem, which for reasons of geography and history and all of those things, doesn't simply go away because a democratic public wishes it to? Um, I would actually argue the opposite, precisely because historically, this is always how the Taiwanese public has voted. The primary split, the primary political cleavage in Taiwanese politics has always been independence versus unification, and that continues to be the case. Even if there have been some shifts or some attempts by political parties to push towards more left-right politics or liberal versus conservative, this is not really managed to work. You do have to play the independence versus unification game. Uh, but I think particularly for Taiwan, a lot of the anxiety is just seeing China's actions. People are not aware of what has taken place in Hong Kong, despite promises to leave the political system alone for 50 years, or what takes place in Xinjiang, or the treatment of Tibetans. And so I think in that sense, the boat has sailed on the notion of simply adhering to uh, some notion in which you make concessions to China and China will leave you alone. Because the, I think the expectation now is that whatever you agree on will change. Very clearly put. Let's use that, I think, to talk about some of the recent events that have changed and perhaps even upended whatever that fast-shifting status quo may have been around Taiwan and the surrounding area. And I think we can't speak in the summer without speaking about uh, the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who, of course, made a very high-profile visit, as we're speaking just a few days ago, in fact, to Taiwan. Um, can I stick with you for a moment there, uh, Brian? Because obviously, you were I assume you were in Taipei when the visit actually happened. Could I ask, first, your own personal reaction to it? And then, if you'd broaden it out and give us a sense of how it's gone down in wider society, what the meaning of that visit is in the Taiwan of today. Yeah, I guess first for my own personal reaction is, well, it is quite a lot of work suddenly having a lot of media requests and uh, then doing a lot of articles and so forth. So there's that. That's the pragmatics of it. But I think what's particularly interesting to note about the visit is the large perception gap within Taiwan and outside of it. Uh, there was not as much discussion in Taiwan of the visit until it took place around 48 hours before that, despite that this was discussed for weeks beforehand internationally. Uh, there is not terror, for example, in recent times of Chinese military threats. This does not really resonate with the public because I think a lot of military threats have become really repetitive. It becomes a mundane news item. And so with the Pelosi visit, I mean, public polling that was released today shows public approval of it. And that did seem to be the case based on reactions on the ground that people, for example, gathered outside. By what percentage, outside. actually, Brian? What, what percentage something like 50, I don't remember the off my, top of my head. It's like 52% or something like that. Ooh, and I think in, the, in the United Kingdom, we, we get very wary about um, um, polls that have 52, 48 uh, on them. They, they tend to be problematic. Now, the reason I ask that is that that suggests that you've got a majority of people being polled who think it was a good idea. But actually, it seems there's a certain level of ambivalence. 52 is not 72. Of course. And so I also do question the polling because I think that we shouldn't actually uh, evaluate based on the polling in which polling companies in Taiwan or think tanks tend to have partisan slants. And so this one is much more pan green. Just so explain pan green to our listeners. Pan green yes. meaning historically pro-independence leaning, such as the currently ruling DPP. Um, and so I think the general perception of the public is that they welcome social support from the US and the Chinese military threats are viewed as something that has occurred before and are occurring again. But I don't think that they implicitly view it as necessarily having a cause effect uh, impact. And so I don't think people in Taiwan necessarily perceive the escalation that much in the international world do as well, despite directly being in a line of fire. And so I think it's interesting to think about how the threat perception in Taiwan versus without is actually also quite different. Daniel, can I turn to you on the Pelosi visit? I'm guessing, and I hope I'm not extrapolating uh, what I shouldn't do, that you probably thought that this visit was unwise. Would that be fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was I was arguing against it because there was no upside. There has been no shortage of many delegations that have gone there, especially, I mean, you had former secretaries of defense, secretaries of state uh, that have gone in just recent months. Uh, and, and there's you know plenty of other you know, congressional delegations have gone this was a higher profile than anything else, you know, as we know, since 1995. 
And uh, all it could do was inflame tensions. There's no benefit to Taiwan. There was no benefit to the United States. It doesn't make anything less likely for military confrontations. All it does is add agitation to it. And so in that regard, I think it was an absolute lose for the United States and God help us, but a potential loss for Taiwan as well. I don't think it helped anything. Daniel, to be clear, would you essentially advise that really elected U.S. officials or Western officials just should not visit Taiwan or officials above a certain level? What would be your point of principle or your red line on that? Our our U.S. policy should be to do whatever we can to maximize the security of Taiwan, to maximize the ability for the United States and really the global community to do business with Taiwan, to preserve security in the area so that nobody has to fight a war. If that means let's send more business associates there, let's you know have other kinds of cultural exchanges, anything that advances democracy and peace and doesn't raise the chance that Taiwan is eventually attacked. I mean, how are we possibly going to look backwards if things go sideways and say that we helped Taiwan with all of these things that were at least cited by Jing as, as points of friction because they don't say anything about business. Obviously, they, China says, at least in their white paper they just released, that they want business to continue to go with, with Taiwan, and, and they're facilitating that. They want that to continue on. What they don't want is anything politically moving towards independence. And so I think that that should rationally ad- advise our, our actions. And yeah, that would mean no Pelosi visits. Ben, is there a danger that Nancy Pelosi, with her visit, didn't turn up packing a machine gun, but essentially packing a water pistol? In other words, something that looked like quite a strong gesture, but actually could not really have been backed up or cannot be in the future backed up in any meaningful way. And that's more dangerous than basically turning up with empty hands. I think there is that danger. I mean, I personally lent towards supporting the Pelosi visit because uh, I think and where I do agree with Daniel is that we should be doing everything possible to signal our support for Taiwan's democracy and everything short of uh, recognition of independence. I've never advocated a shift from the status quo because I think that would be a provocation too far and it would be wholly counterproductive, even though uh, there are all sorts of justifications for recognizing Taiwan. But I think we should do everything possible short of of changing the status quo to signal our support. And and so that's why I did support her visit. But I certainly agree that there is a, a real danger in going empty handed or going with just rhetoric and to use your analogy, a, a water pistol rather than anything stronger. And that I acknowledge the dangers of that. We here on this podcast, perhaps fortunately for the world, are not in a position actually to impose any solutions on anyone, but it gives us a bit of leeway to talk about some of the practicalities. Let's talk about something that's been mentioned by a couple of people, including Daniel just now, which is a white paper that's just emerged in Chinese and in English on what China intends for Taiwan if it were to essentially become part of the People's Republic of China. And for those of us who are kind of nerdish enough to look at past editions of this uh, of this publication, it's worth noting that it's changed a bit over time. The first or the first of the kind of modern series of these is in 1993. There was another one in 2000. The 1993 one is a rather extraordinary document in retrospect. It basically says at that point that if Taiwan moves towards becoming part of the PRC, then it would be allowed to keep its own armed forces. Beijing wouldn't send any armed forces to the island, though. Taiwan would be able to send representatives to the National People's Congress Beijing, but China would do nothing to uh, actually send its own political representatives into Taiwan and and so forth. And of course, it was based very much on the early, much freer phrase of Hong Kong's um, upcoming uh, handover, which hadn't happened at that point. The 2000 version is not dissimilar, although it's a little bit more hardcore in places. The latest version, 2022, has cut quite a lot of the language, including about not sending military, uh, Chinese military, to Taiwan itself. But I wanted to bring up those earlier versions to point out there have been times in recent memory when the authoritarian PRC was making a set of proposals to the Liberal Democratic Republic of China on Taiwan that it thought it could at least negotiate. So the question I'd have for each of you coming from your own positions is, what is it you think that could be the shared area of discussion, the Overton window, if uh, it's sometimes put that way, about what a realistic Taiwan-China agreement that avoids war could look like. I mean, Ben, is there any such point of agreement that you could sketch out for us? Well, I think, I mean, first, the first thing I would say is that it has to be uh, the, the Taiwanese people who make that call. Um, I can express a view, but it, but it has, has to be for Taiwan to, to make that decision. I think I'm fairly skeptical now after everything that I've seen happen in Hong Kong in recent years, 
that uh, particularly under the current leadership of Xi Jinping, any any meaningful offer to Taiwan would be worth the paper that it's written on because Xi Jinping has completely torn up one country, two systems in Hong Kong. So but Taiwan, um, of course, continues to have its own army in a way that Hong Kong never did. I mean, would that make a difference? I mean, it's hard to see Xi Jinping uh, sticking with that 1993 proposal of Taiwan having its own army and not sending in uh, mainland officials or or military personnel. It's difficult to see. And it's worth keeping in mind in this discussion, the recent words of, I think it was the Chinese ambassador to Paris who was interviewed, and he talked about uh, re-education of the Taiwanese people. And that's a pretty ominous uh, thought. So is the answer to the question then, Ben, that you don't think there is really any area where there can be a discussion, even a starting point for discussion? You've just outlined very well the areas where you think there isn't an area for discussion. I think, I mean, Taiwanese friends will correct me if I'm wrong, but under the current leadership in Beijing, it's really hard to see, from my perspective, what what there would be. Okay, that's clear. Um, Let's go to a friend in Taipei, Brian. um, Is there any area whatsoever in which actually the two sides could have a meaningful discussion? So I think uh, what's very interesting is what the pan-green camp and the DPP under Tsai Ing-wen has actually said, because I think sometimes the perception of Tsai is incorrect, viewing her as similar to her predecessor, Chen Shui-bian, who's viewed as much more pro-independence and very strong on that issue, because she's backed away from pro-independence and towards a status quo position. She has said that she'd be willing to travel to Beijing to meet with Xi Jinping if there's a parity, if there's equality between them. And that in itself, making that statement, did provoke backlash from within her own party. Even during the recent drilling, she said there's no need for the issues open to dialogue. Uh, but then I don't think that China would adhere to this now. They would still view the current status quo, maintain the current status quo as a pro-independence position. The red lines are shifting, uh, the goalposts change, and so forth. Uh, but I think the key point interesting about the white paper is that it's not as clear to me how accurate China's perception of Taiwan at present is, that they don't realize how electorally unviable the KMT has made itself. That's through, uh, for example, economic sanctions combined with military threats they have caused actually the Chinese market, which they may be relying on to convince Taiwan to get closer, to be viewed as politically risky. You get shut out for arbitrary reasons, regardless of your political affiliations. You could be a pan-green company or a pan-blue company, and you still might get labeled as pro-independence and shut out. And so I think China has actually shot itself in the foot there, but it still adheres to this, at least in the white paper. So, so is the answer to your question, maybe people in Beijing need to start talking to some actual real live Taiwanese <laughs> people having citizens councils? Uh, you know, it's, it's the lack of dialogue in part that's making this so difficult because nobody in Beijing actually knows what's going on in Taiwan. So that is actually very interesting to me because I don't think it's just a matter of dialogue because there's actually ways to get information on Taiwan. There are Chinese people living in Taiwan. There are businessmen that travel here, students and so forth. So it really is, I think, the uh, highly abstract perception of Taiwan from the senior leadership. It doesn't actually keep take into account local realities. And so oftentimes you see what you want to see, not what is real. And so it may not be dialogue. It might just be that these perceptions don't get through to leadership. So next summer break, bring Xi Jinping over for a bit of a holiday uh, in, uh, in Ali Shan, take That'd him to Sun Moon Lake, uh, take him on a little boating trip and have a little chit chat with him. Well, you know, we're all about uh, trying to find new ways towards peace here on this uh, podcast. Daniel, what would your realistic starting point be, bearing in mind in the old you know, famous saying, we're starting from where we are. Since we are starting from where we are, is there anything other than a very bleak path that enables us to have a serious conversation? Uh, there is absolutely room for that. And even this adjusted new white paper, as you just uh, articulated, the differences between uh, the 1993 version and, and the current situation, along with uh, what the Taiwanese president just said that Ben pointed out there, I think there is absolutely room for discussion on this. The danger that I think exists and why I would be emphatic supporter of such a dialogue is that I think China is, number one, they're growing much more powerful militarily, economically. You know, they're developing and they're getting much more confident than they have been in, in recent past, certainly more than they were in 1995, 96. I perceive that they're getting close to that point, for all we know, may already have passed it, that they had said, and I think it was the 2005 national security law, that uh, not just Taiwanese declaration of independence, whether real or de facto, but also if they viewed the situation had passed a point of no return and the Taiwan would never willingly reunify, that could also spawn a military response. I get the feeling that they're getting close to coming to that point and concluding that talking is no good, talking doesn't matter because Taiwan's not going to come back and the United States is not going to you know, change its course. So we just need to get militarily prepared for that inevitable day. 
we've got to change that mentality. And I'm so strong in saying that it would be catastrophic, as Ben argued earlier, for the global community, the global economy, just mankind itself, if there was a war here, because it would be, I mean, I think 10 times worse than what we've seen in, in Russia, Ukraine so far. Uh, for so many reasons. So we need to do everything we can. And that means the United States needs to back off to some of the political stuff, stay on with the human rights stuff, stay on with the, uh, you know, the economic stuff, but back off on the political stuff. And let's behind the scenes, encourage both Taipei and Beijing to, hey, let's get talking again. Just talk. I, I think that because China is, you know, historically likes to look long term, they don't have to have a resolution, in, you know, in between now and January or something. I mean, I think if they're like, if we're just on the right path, that eventually we could come to some kind of negotiated agreement, something that would be acceptable to all parties. Nobody's going to get what they want. Then maybe we have a chance to avoid war. But if nobody's willing to change their position, I fear that we're on some kind of an internal countdown that only maybe Xi Jinping knows what it is, and it could end ugly for everyone. Brian, I wonder if I could get a quick um, thought from you on, on Daniel's comment there. I think the issue then is that Beijing is not open to compromising or dialogue uh, right now. And I think that then the issue is how to make Beijing realize the enormous costs that are at stake. Because I think there's the unrealistic view that prevails among particularly nationalists, and it's not clear how much they influence policy. But it is that simply taking Taiwan to be easy. I don't think it's an accounting of the enormous loss of life of Chinese lives and of the enormous catastrophic economic impact, which would also influence Chinese lives. Uh, that would occur from this. And so I think then raising the stakes of the discussion to make China realize the consequences of this is quite key at present. Um, and I think it's actually very hard to get to that point. And I think it's hard to get out of a pattern of tit-for-tat escalation, which both sides perceive themselves as reacting to the other, but then how to actually, for example, avoid that that, that escalation is, is, is a challenge. Could I, as we come to a close here, ask each of you for a brief final reflection, which is not so much on what you think the best path, path forward would, would be. I think we've had a really exciting discussion about all sorts of detailed possibilities. But sitting here in 2022 and realizing, as I think we all do, that the 2020s, one way or another, is clearly going to be a very important decade in terms of the question of Taiwan, what you think is in practice, knowing the situation in the US, in China, in Taiwan, and of course in allies of uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, and so forth, what the sort of panoply of opinions are there. What do you think is the most likely outcome in the next few years? Will we avoid catastrophe? Or do you think that actually we are heading, at least at the moment, towards something that is very destructive? Let me start with Ben. I'm I'm always cautious about making predictions because so many things have happened in recent years that I would never have predicted. Um, but I don't think there's been a time in my lifetime where the situation over Taiwan has been more worrying. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to uh, inevitably end in catastrophe, um, but I think it is incredibly serious. And I, I mean, I agree with Daniel's best case scenario. If we can have a dialogue, we should, but I, I'm just not convinced that Beijing is open to it. But I do agree with Brian that what we have to do is spell out really clearly to Beijing that this would be catastrophic, not just for Taiwan, not just for the rest of the world, but for China itself. And if we can do that, then we can prevent it. Just to follow briefly on that, because the question is about what we think will happen in the next few years. Do you think that the Western allies, and you obviously are very close, I think, to people who are in the current UK government, or at least kind of work with it, do you think that your own proposal about that united front, if we use a good communist term, uh, of liberal allies is actually realistic in the next few years? Do you think it will happen? I think it's moving slowly in that direction. But I do think that uh, in contrast to Washington, DC, and, and perhaps capitals around the Asia region, we have a lot of work to do in the UK to educate people on Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is it's starting to be talked about more, but it's not talked about enough, given the severity of the situation in our parliament, in our media, in our political circles. Daniel. You know, in the months leading up to the Russia-Ukraine war, I, I was emphatic of, of saying that all the trends are moving in the direction of military conflict, uh, hardening of positions in uh, Kiev, and a, an angering position within Moscow. And I could just see the pieces move in that direction. And I warned we were in the 11th hour in uh, January, et cetera. And of course, that's exactly how it turned out. If you're asking me how I think it will happen, not what should happen, I fear that we're on a similar trajectory and for similar reasons, because I see a hardening of the position in Beijing. I see a, a more of a frustration, a growing confidence. 
I see in Washington, D.C., more of a belligerent kind of in-your-face kind of, oh, hell no, I'm not going to back down from anybody. We're going to do whatever the hell we want to do, kind of cowboy mentality, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, that, you know, always seeks to show strength and we can't have, you know, so-called appeasement, which basically means anything besides combat. You know, we now tag anything as appeasement that doesn't include military force. And and even as Brian has kind of pointed out, some of the attitudes within, you know, all the political sides, even in Taiwan, seem to be moving away from even the concept of unification. And I fear that all of those trends are moving in a direction that will eventually end in military action on Taiwan. And that is why it is so vital that everybody do something to change those perceptions, or I fear that's where we're going to end. Sobering thought. Thank you, Daniel. And I think the last word must go to Taipei and to Brian. Yeah, so I think in the uh, discussion of Chinese invasion, I think we have to be quite careful about how we discuss this. Is this short-term, medium-term, or long-term? I don't think it's going to happen in the short term. There could be more likely an intermediate action, such as gray zone tactics or attacking an outlying island or a blockade. Full-scale invasion, that's still quite off the table. But then politically, it's hard to know what happens. The Pelosi visit's an interesting example in microcosm. It would not have blown up this way if not for the fact that it was reported on beforehand as something that would happen, allowing for international discussion to grow, uh, that warning of the consequences, and that obligates China to have a very strong response, which is what we did see. And that's contingent. Nobody expected it to suddenly become like this so quickly. Uh, but then I think also then looking at terms in Taiwan, what worries me particularly is inside and outside. Perceptions vary a lot. And we saw that with the recent visit. And that could occur in the future as well. For example, Tsai is still seen as a pro-independence diehard by some people, but she's actually tried to make compromise, for example. Uh, I also think it's important to pay attention to the stakes of the debate, not just in the US and China, but also regional powers such as Japan, in which public opinion or the actions of the LDP are often with the China threat as a concern. And this also plays another role in conflict. And I think the uh, relation, interrelation between regional powers will be key to observe going forward. And that's maybe the biggest uncertain factor as we progress, because I don't think China is going to really drop it with threats. Continuing events may happen. And I think Taiwan will try to avoid conflict, but it might not be able to decide its own future in that sense. Well, that is a question I'm sure we'll come back to in many future discussions, podcasts and elsewhere. Brian, Daniel, Ben, thank you all. And that was Brian Ho, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis and Benedict Rogers. And you've been listening to The Sunday Debate from Intelligence Squared. I've been Ron Amitter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.